Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. It's creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning, very specific action verb. This is season three. Season three of The Actor's Mind, a podcast. You got it, you got it. <laughs> By Kateri McCrae and Anne Penna. <laughs> We are very excited to be back for season three of The Actor's Mind. This season is made possible with continuing funds from the University of Denver, the Creative Arts Materials Fund, as well as the Faculty Research Fund. So thank you to the College of Arts, Humanities, Social Sciences, as well as the Faculty Senate for funding those proposals of ours. We're able to make a case for those funds because we have amazing listeners from all over the country and all over the world. Yeah. Um, We have dozens of countries that we see pop up on our SoundCloud uh, listeners. So that's really exciting. And we have had uh, a a few generous handfuls of people give us really great iTunes ratings, which is really helpful. So if you've been enjoying us and you haven't yet gone to iTunes and give a rating, that's actually really, really helpful for us. And send us an email so we can virtually talk to you and hear what you think and we'll write you back and and um, just continue the conversation that way too. Yeah. You might be shocked to hear that we both enjoy positive feedback. <laughs> <laughs> what? I know. You could give us other kinds of feedback too. That's true. If you right? have topics that you'd be interested in us covering, Please. we'd be super into that. Or if you have areas of expertise, we've had a few experts reach out to us and say, hey, I know a little bit about this thing. And that has actually jump-started some of our research for new episodes. Yeah. So cool. Uh, So this is season three, episode two of The Actor's Mind, and it is on emotion. So why emotion? Um, It's Kateri's expertise, and it is a tool that I want to dig really, really deep into because I know it has value, but I don't always know how to teach it. Uh, So I want to start by just checking in with Kateri and and ask, you know, what emotions are, are inside of you? How are you feeling right now? So if you weren't asking me this before our episode on emotion, even me, who, who has a degree in this, and I self-identify as an affective scientist, which is just jargony words for emotion nerd, um, I normally, when people ask me how I'm doing, I normally just say, I'm all right, yeah. you know? And my mom was a grammar nerd, so I usually say, I'm doing well, well. rather than I'm doing good, just because I can hear, like, my, I can, like, feel my mom's shoulders tense if I say I'm doing good. Um, so I'm usually actually pretty nonspecific, but right at this moment, since I am an affective scientist and we are talking about emotion, if I can get a little bit more granular, I think I'm excited. I have a positively valenced anticipation. <gasps> Yeah. That's going on right now, yeah. and I feel a lot of energy in my in my body. Like yeah. my heart's beating pretty fast, and I'm like a little wiggly, like on my little perch, because <laughs> um, I'm I'm like really happy to be here. And there's a smile plastered on my face because I'm looking at your face, and you're also smiling. smiling and there's like an infinite feedback loop going. Oh, nice! <laughs> Can you define a valence? Valence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so emotion scientists. So emotion is is a term that is usually conceived of under a broader umbrella um, of affect. So affect, A-F-F-E-C-T. You got it. You got it. <laughs> I don't spell it out loud very much. It's not a word that my, I need to have my daughter not understand. Um, so emotion is usually considered as one type of affect, affect being uh, distinct from a cognitive state. And um, 
most affective states are thought to be valenced in that they are unneutral. They either have a pleasant or an unpleasant quality, or some people refer to this as positive or negative states, so that they are they are not devoid of some sort of emotion or or push or pull, as it were. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel happy and jittery and giddy, and my heart's maybe beating a little bit faster than usual, and yeah. I can't stop smiling because uh, I really enjoy doing this with you, and I also think emotion is something that we talk about constantly, so I'm glad we're doing a whole episode on it. And I always feel slightly anxious about all the technology uh-huh. involved, like to make sure we're actually recording yeah. and not just talking into a void. Yeah, um, I think the like jittery positive anticipation mm-hmm. is like 80% pure positive and 20% yep. a little bit nervous that like the computer will yeah. blow up. Just sort of understanding this moment in time of feeling emotion. It can be multiple things at once. It's not one thing. So Katiri mentioned that uh, she wanted to hear how I talk about it in class. So we're going to get started with that. So in, in any of my acting classes, especially especially a beginning acting class, uh, I, I, my, often my initial reaction is I cringe when actors say that acting is playing emotion, acting is emoting, uh, and that they, even when they comment and give a nice compliment, and in some ways an accurate comment to one of their uh, classmates saying, hey, I really liked how you played the emotional life of that character. Inside, I'm, I'm screaming. Because <laughs> I think... I think at this very introductory level, do not think about playing emotion. You cannot play emotion. Emotion is a consequence of all these other things, the action, the objective, the, the, the character living truthfully inside these given circumstances, all these things, ideas, people, settings that they are in relationship to. Um, so, I, But I realize that that is not the most mature response or most sophisticated and ultimately not the most helpful from a teacher perspective. And that, of course, the emotional life of a character is one of the most important things to keep in mind because it attaches the actor to the story, the character to the story, and ultimately the audience. So I want to start by asking, how do we teach this thing? That's where I actually want to get to. How do we teach emotion? If we can, if we can agree that it is, and how can we, quote-unquote, play emotion? If we can agree that it's a valuable part of the storytelling... How do we do it in a, in a useful, doable way? And I want Kateri to start by defining emotion. Super easy, right? So most emotion scientists that I know would refuse to <laughs> provide one singular definition of emotion. They might have a working concept that, that is fluid over time. There might be scholarly definitions that they uh, sort of agree with more than others, but a lot of emotion scientists have a hard time agreeing upon this is exactly what emotion is. And a lot of times emotion ends up being defined either by what caused it or the consequences of it, right? So some people will talk about emotions as reactions to particular situations, right? So you're not actually defining what the emotion is, um, but you're defining what caused it. And then other people might define emotions by its consequences, right? A lot of people define emotions by what happens next, that emotions are organizing forces that allow people to um, uh, behave adaptively. That's that's a common definition um, that, that I, I sort of hear a lot. I think that when most lay people use the term emotion, they're referring to subjective feeling states, 
right? They're re- they are referring to state words that could fill in the sentence, I feel this, like you asked me at the beginning of yeah. the episode. Um, a lot of emotion scientists distinguish emotions from moods because they are more time limited. Um, so moods can be pervasive and last hours or sometimes even days, right? Like you can say, oh, she's in a mood and emotions tend to be thought of as a little bit more time limited and a little bit more situationally bound. So I wrote a, um, a piece recently that was actually focused on defining emotion regulation, but it's very hard to define emotion regulation without defining emotion. So the definition I offered in that piece, which I do not claim is absolutely perfect, um, is that emotions are valenced states. So again, pleasant or unpleasant states that are situationally bound, right? That have a specific cause and a beginning, middle and end, um, and that are time limited, that are relatively time limited, um, so that's that's the sort of working way that I think yeah. about it. I also realize that my own definition actually doesn't focus on that subjective feeling piece, which is I think what most humans walking around like yeah. think of emotions are as like those times when I am sad, those times when I am angry, those times when I am joyful. Yeah. I love that you said situationally bound, that it's yeah. always attached to something else. I think that's my nervousness is like it's such a a powerful language in an acting class that I'm nervous that it it we might detach it from all the other things yeah. that it's tied to. And I also really like that it is part of a connecting the dots process yeah. that that an emotion is a reaction to an event that happens to you mm-hmm. or an action that's played on you. And it also is a thing that motivates and ri- and and entices you, activates you to to move forward with yeah. action. So maybe you can get around your maybe one of the things you can start to, if you want to be a super, super like technical nerd about it, sure, you could start telling your students, don't play mood. Moods are unplayable, right? Like just playing yeah. these pervasive, free-floating, like cloud hanging over your head, right. that that's what's unuseful. But emotions, if you use my definition, <laughs> are more useful because they are situationally bound. And again, one way to think about them is that emotions are these uh, these sorts of, of processes that are contained within a body uh-huh. that respond to certain um, situations in the world. Yeah with appropriate behaviors, right? So the input is the stuff you get from the world. The output is your behaviors. And the emotions are what tie those two things together. And the emotions are part of that very rapid decision-making process of yeah. given all the information I have about the world right now, what should I do to to behave adaptively, to do the sort of right thing? Yeah, so what I'm hearing in the language that you're using and what I want to support is that the 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 emotions in some way in, in the actor process, the actor experience of performing are not set that they are spontaneous, that they are fluid. They, hmm. There are certain parts of storytelling that you're going to set. You have to speak the lines. You have to decide what you want. They, uh, You decide really specific circumstances in terms of your relationship to these things. But sometimes, and actually, I would argue, as often as possible, though probably not 100% of the time, I don't even know if I agree with this. I might do a lot of agreeing and disagreeing, but I'll just put it out there that the emotions are the thing the actor slash character is experiencing as a consequence of playing all the other more doable practical things. Because it happens that in a in a mm, performance situation, I can give an example. Uh, 
the actor slash character will feel something different than they felt up until that point. Sure. So I saw a play years ago at Curious Theater and I was talking to the to one of the actors afterward and he said, usually when I enter this scene, the character slash I feels um, maybe heavy, heavy, mm-hmm. like or or slightly, I don't remember the words, despair or just sad, right? But at this moment with the same lines, the same situation, the same co-actor, same scene partner, I felt hopeful. I felt lighter. I felt happy. And I thought, yeah, like that, that's possible. That, yeah. that happens. That, I think there are stories where emotion needs to be set. The emotional life, yeah. of course, needs to be set. I'm sure I'm going to disagree with myself. But I think we can encourage ourselves to push into the spontaneity a well, little bit and more. And again, if you think of, again, that your emotions are your response to a great number of, of inputs, if you think about it as inputs, yes. some of those inputs are the words that your scene partners are saying to you or the order of the scenes that have came, come before, and those will be set. Yes. Right? So there are certain aspects of like what you are taking in visually that it will also be the same, right? The set design and the lighting design will be setting the same mood and whatever. But, you know, have you ever done um, a show in a space where the the light um, control was not perfect? And sure. so like the matinees, there's more ambient light than yes. during evening shows. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that, that would be a very low level difference in the information you're taking in right. around you, right. but also what your scene partner has given you and like what you brought to the whole show that day, right. because you can't completely separate all the things that you were feeling before you walked right. in the door. Right, 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 right. Colora- you might Col- try. Colorado Shakespeare Festival, even the difference in starting a show at 6.30 versus 8. Most of the yeah. shows start at 8 and it's dusk. When you have that bright light, it, the first time it happens, it's really distracting and you realize there's like individual audience members rather than a big blob. And it's distracting, like but you could- crackers. Yeah, you know, and it often can be sort of a negative circumstance, but there's no reason you couldn't turn that into sure. a positive. So we talked, uh, Kateri beautifully articulated what emotion is, which is hard to define, even though we use this word constantly. Um, I want to just briefly brainstorm what it's not. I was talking to a friend recently and he goes, everyone says, you know, emotion is, people use that word like it means to cry. Like, so it has this negative connotation and it means like you're overflowing, you're out Mm. of control. Like when people say I'm emotional right now. I'm emotional right now because there's tears coming out, Mm. right? I want to push us into the world of we're, we're constantly experiencing emotions at just varying levels. Mm -hmm. Um, There are instances where emotion, here's another myth that I think is not fully true about emotion. Emotion is when reason goes offline, when there's this dichotomy between prefrontal cortex, reasoning, logic, I'm in control of my brain and my body, and then the amygdala and emotion and being out of control. And that does happen. Like I have many instances where, (laughs) and there are instances on stage where characters sort of lost reason and they are very emotional, but I really love the idea that they can coexist, that I can right now with Kateri be having an intellectual idea-driven conversation and also feel happy. That that to, to be emotional does not necessarily mean that I've lost reason. Yes, and I think that the very general... Um, conception of emotion versus reason has been going on for a really long time. And there is some partial brain evidence that supports that, again, partially, Uh you know, and I think that for people who are, for people who are unaware of the fact that we are able to take some control of our emotions, um, and for people who are unaware of the fact that emotional, that very intense emotional responses can override more rational information processing, sure. 
it is helpful to point out that dichotomy. And it's like, it's very helpful for children and for people who work with children to understand that you couldn't expect someone who is an extremely overwhelmed state to process something really logically, right? So like if your child were pounding their fists on the ground, like demanding something for you to say, but sweetie, you know, like if, Mm -hmm. if your child is demanding ice cream, you say, but sweetie, in 30 minutes, we will get in the car and go to the store and I will get five ice creams and you can have one ice cream every day for the next five days. Like that's a very rational solution to the problem, but that is not going to, to, What's the word I'm looking for? That's not going to calm that child. Exactly. So I think that like there's a lot of trainings um, teaching, you know, elementary school teachers, teaching children about their amygdala, teaching them about a lot of times they say, you know, this is your lizard brain and this is your wizard brain. And I just learned this the other day from someone whose kiddo learned this in counseling, right, in therapy. And, And that that is a useful thing to alert people to. But like a lot of other useful distinctions, it's a vast oversimplification. And most of the time when we have a particular subjective feeling state, there's actually quite a bit of cognition or thought that goes into that, right? Like a lot of times the things that cause us to feel a certain way are, can be quite heady, right? Like they can be almost like existential or like very future focused or like a lot of these things that we don't associate with emotionality versus rational thought. But, and there's, there's a lot of evidence that they feed off of each other and coexist. I love that. I, uh, I'm in love with Lizzo right now uh-huh. and she's that amazing. You and the rest of the world. <laughs> I know. She's an amazing <laughs> quote. She's like, uh, I got boy problems. That's the human in me. And then, then I solve them. That's a goddess in me. Like that's her lizard and her wizard brain, oh, right? Nice. Is like the problems and the solutions. Totally. Um, and then finally, which we've already spoken to, uh, emotion is not bad. Human beings mm. sometimes think it's not okay to feel or express anger. Yeah. Feel or express other things. I have a lot of students and mm-hmm. I had just taught a first year seminar and I constantly, because it was about character and building character, I often was asking about themselves as character. And they're like, you talk, you ask us about emotion so much, more than anyone who's ever has. And emotions, I don't like to think about them. And I thought, oh man, we got to we gotta embrace these as, as appropriate often yeah. and not always inappropriate. Yeah. I think there's like family and cultural variation in that, but I do think that there, especially with negative of emotion, I think that there can be um, some stigma associated with with expressing that you feel, especially sadness and anger, um, sure. that, that that those aren't supposed to be acceptable. But in the right and and there are some situations in which very strong levels of them are going to keep you from your goals. Yes, right. Um, if you are in a meeting and you think of, you know, someone who you've recently lost and are grieving over, while some very sensitive colleagues might be understanding if you burst into tears in a meeting, like that's usually not acceptable meeting behavior. And if you did that frequently or if you did that with a great intensity, if you just started wailing and sobbing in a meeting. Um, I'm just picturing like the scene Shakespeare would write about someone who just starts wailing. (laughs) (laughs) But, um... You know, so 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 there's there there's certainly there's certainly reasons why we shouldn't let our emotions go entirely unchecked, but it's also not the case that people are healthier who have lesser amount of of all emotions or even lesser amounts of negative emotions. Right. So I just wanted to play I've been thinking a lot about a thought experiment, which is at least my own personal thought experiment, which is I often teach 
three different ways to enter into character. Mm. And I separate out, as we do as teachers sometimes and thinkers and students, we kind of separate out ideas or tools that actually belong together. But I think, okay, you can enter into character through cognition, through thought, through their brain, that their thought process. Why do they say that thing? What are they thinking? What do they want? All the Mm -hmm. script analysis. You can enter character through physicality. And by extension, voice, I see those as, as overlapping through how does this character's body move through space? What is their mm-hmm. shape, et cetera, which we've already talked about. And then there's the emotional life of the character. And I usually uh, discourage students from starting with emotion and um, that, that the emotion information you'll get from understanding the mm. others. Mm. But what I now want to suggest is let's just say that those are all interconnected. They are. So that when we talk about emotion, we can jump to thought or we can jump to physicality. Um, And just as an experiment, I want to surrender to this idea of playing emotion Mm -hmm. and see what we get out of it. So... Katiri, can yes, you Anne. just be angry? Can you be angry maybe with me? I'm so angry <laughs> Good. So what I'm seeing is her voice. She's clenching, right? So she's tensing up. Her fists, she's, I love it. Just keep going. Her fists are really tight. She's kind of shaking. She's so angry. Her shoulders. Her shoulders are around her ears. Her, she's furrowing her brow. Her whole face is scrunched up and she can't really talk properly because she's probably not breathing fully. And so she's not talking the way she usually talks. She can't even get the sound out because her whole body is angry. So did any thought happen there? I had a mental image of a yes. rock. Yeah. Of a, of a, of a shaking rock. Um, and so I kind of tried to bo- make, make myself a little boxier. Yeah. And I and I, I don't uh, a particular situation did not come to mind. Yeah. Circumstances did not jump to yeah. mind. So I want to speak to a couple of things. So, so I, two in some ways in disagreement things. So we we immediately create some specificity, which is physically she's relatively specific, and she has an image, or we could say a metaphor, mm-hmm. metaphor of a rock. Right? And metaphors are really useful for dissecting all sorts of things, including emotion. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was useful. And that created some specificity, right? That was tied to the physicality. But she did not, by given, by just playing a general emotion, and when I say general, what I mean is there are as many different ways to feel anger and experience anger. I almost want to use the word experience more yeah. than feel as there are human beings and their unique experiences in the world. So I can be angry at my dog for pooping in my living room. I can be angry with a politician, and that's for uh, letting me down, which is a different anger. I can be angry at my husband or my best friend because they shared a secret that I only wanted them. Those are three very distinct angers that should be di- that can be even for out of the same human being be yeah. expressed in different ways. Well, and the other thing that was difficult for me doing that is it was very stagnant. I didn't yeah. have any dynamics in it. Yes. I just was holding this pose and like producing a certain type of sound over and over again. It had no trajectory for me. Yeah. And it was even though I only did I did it for less than a minute, it was exhausting. I didn't I couldn't yeah. maintain it because right. it had no purpose. It just was like yeah, it, and it had it'd be no, like if you were like do a handstand. I'd be right. like, I can, but I I don't want to do that for long. It was <laughs> exhausting because I think 
you didn't understand its pr- you understood the purpose within like the podcast but as an actor it <laughs> right. had very little purpose yeah. and and also there was you couldn't breathe inside of it it was hard to relax inside of it yeah. and and i do want to say yeah so here are some specific things and but to support that there were no there were no circumstances attached right. to it right but if we told Kateri she's angry because or she wants to express anger in order to get this thing then we create some ac- some action in it right some yeah. movement inside of it yeah and i think that you know I I agree with your conceptualization, as you say, of mind, body, and emotion as sort of all flowing into each other. And I think that maybe what emotion scientists would translate that into would translate mind into thought or appraisal. Um, And thought or appraisal need not be conscious, but that is one thing. Um, The bodily sensations or the bodily expressions of emotion, the the physiology, the heart rate, the the breathing, the sweating, Um, and then a subjective feeling, right? Like how people would say that they feel. And... What's really interesting is that, um, as I said before, emotion scientists can't really agree on a definition. And there's some other things they can't really agree on either because that's kind of how science works is you don't agree (laughs) on stuff and then you design experiments to see who's right. Um, And some, I I think for, for the last... Setting aside philosophers who who sort of um, pontificated a, upon what emotion might be um, uh, and how it might be structured, um, for the last, gosh, 70 or 80 years, as long as people have been trying to do scientific studies of emotion, there have been... Uh, there, there have been a sort of continuum of positions on how emotions are kind of structured. And uh, while a lot of emotion scientists do not consider themselves at the extremes of this continuum, I think it's useful to, for me to describe the positions at the very, very, very extremes. So one of the extremes um, is often what's called the basic emotions point of view. So basic emotions uh, theorists, like card-carrying, uh, un- unapologetic basic emotions mm-hmm. theorists, would say that there are six basic emotions, happiness, sadness, fear, disgust, anger, surprise, right? That those are the the six um, uh, categories under which uh, most of emotional space is taken up, that you can build more complicated emotions with combinations of these emotions. Uh, but part of this, this uh, extreme basic emotion view is that these emotions are actually conserved ac- from um, non-human animals to humans huh. so that animals also experience and express these uh, these behavior patterns that are consistent with fear, anger, disgust, happiness, um, sadness, surprise, and um, also conserved across different cultures so that you could go anywhere in the world and that different cultures, even if they haven't been exposed to Western expressions of emotion, for example, you could show a picture of someone making an angry face and that they could um, give you a word that might translate into anger and or describe a situation that would cause someone to make that face that is consistent with what we think mm. causes anger. Um, so uh, this is also the inside out view of emotions, right? Um, uh, so so many of those basic emotions are represented um, in the movie Inside Out. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, again, the idea is that these are distinct states and that they should have distinct causes and consequences. Mm. And they, that they also, part of the theory is that they should have distinct physiological signatures. So the pattern of your breathing and heart rate and muscle tension and facial expressions should distinguish between sadness and anger, for example. The very other end of the continuum is uh, a lot of people would refer to as the constructionist view of emotions. And the constructionist view of emotions is that 
emotions are not do not fit into these basic categories as you were just arguing right, right. that there are a lot of different ways that anger can look and that emotions are so very situated. Emotions are so dependent on the specific situation you're in, yes. as well as specific individual characteristics of you and your own history yes. and experience, that it's really not possible to say that there are these categories for which all humans, much less humans and non-human animals, share characteristics. And that we, that humans... Largely, when we when when we ask humans to report on their subjective feeling, that humans are largely making sense of their emotions sort of after the fact. That we have these undifferentiated bodily responses. Sure. But we know the situation we're in, and we know our own history, and whether it's conscious or unconscious, we create labels for that state. Yep. That makes sense of the world rather than there being these like attractor states that we fall into that, that in, everyone experiences. That interests me where it's like we don't even uh, – a character, an actor doesn't try and put uh, a value, a positive or negative valenced emotional value on in a moment. They just know how activated slash – I use arousal in the, I think the psychological yes. way where it's just like how much yep. your body is activated by the event. Yep. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious. I haven't done a lot with that as a teacher or an actor, but the idea of just figuring figuring out how activated my character needs to be without being like, this means they're positively happy or this yes. means they're negatively frustrated. I they just think, are activated inside of that. I think if you're working on the bodily cog in the, in the, in the, as the wheels are turning, mm -hmm. if you're turning that physicality, I do think that attending to arousal is a simple way to, mm -hmm. to get people into a more specific physicality. And that doesn't have the hangups of the language of now make your body angry or something like yeah. that. Right. Where you can just say, I need more energy. Um, so like a lot of other distinctions in psychology, right? Like in some ways, this continuum, this basic emotions versus constructionist theories, in some ways, it's a little bit like nature versus nurture, where it's kind of helpful to outline these two options. But the answer isn't all right. of A or all of B. Right. It's, it's some mix in the middle. And the evidence falls right in the middle, right? So from a basic emotions point of view, again, this test of basic emotions might be to go to these um, other yes. cultures and, and see whether they can recognize emotions. And the fact is, is that when you go to other cultures, even very, very isolated cultures, they do recognize, like, for example, facial expressions of emotion so there is evidence that there is some universal recognition of these emotions. However, the universal recognition of these emotions is not perfect. There is still error. And that error varies by culture, right? There are some cultures that confuse anger and sadness more and other cultures that might confuse anger and disgust more, for example. And so there is some you know, evidence of construction. And, and again, some of these, these examples that emotion, uh, that the same anger emotion can manifest in different ways is, uh, you know, is true. And so I see, I see the way I look at the evidence is, is it, it's clearly that these basic emotion categories have some validity and some use, sure. but they, they, it doesn't, it doesn't explain a hundred percent of the variation and the search for a physiological signature of the different emotions has not gone well. And we don't know whether that's a, a measurement issue. If we just don't have good enough, like ability to tell what's going on in someone's body, despite what some of the lie detector people would have you say, there isn't a way to hook people up to equipment. Um, and based on what their body is doing, say, I am 99% confident that you are feeling X emotion right now. I have a suggestion, which is if there's a bunch of acting tools, uh, and signi signifiers to an audience happening simultaneously, it's okay. I support the idea that multiple quote unquote emotions might physically express the same way. But if the actor is thinking 
in character clearly, that specific and precise and personal thinking is actually, even if they're not purposefully playing it to the audience, that is going to help the audience mm. read. That I'm obsessed with this idea of of some stuff we have to be explicit in giving and expressing to the audience, and then some things, it's okay if you're thinking them, and the audience is somehow still going to be able to read it. It happened this summer yeah. with Mercutio, where there would be double or triple meanings within one line, mm. and you think, I'm supposed to be specific. I'm supposed to be a decisive. I'm yeah. supposed to make a choice here. How do I play triple meaning? Yeah, And the director was like, play one of them and just think the other two. And yes. I was like, okay, I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to do that. And I actually think that has some value yes. to it. I think it does too. And I've definitely, like, with Shakespeare in particular, I have definitely laughed at, like, lewd Shakespeare references that I don't understand at all. Because the but actor you know plays lewd. them so well. Yeah. I know it's a double entendre. And I'm like, I don't know what that's referring but to at funny. all. <laughs> but totally. it makes me giggle. Yeah, I just, I'm trying to, I want to give value. I'm totally won over by constructionist and I want to give value to the <laughs> yes. sort of stereotypical canonical well, ones. And again, just to give a reverse, one of the criticisms from the constructionist end of the spectrum is that the uh, the canonical emotion faces and even the example p photos of people using the emotion faces that um, this is, for example, some of the work that was done by Paul Ekman in the 70s and 80s, that these faces were posed, right? They actually employed actors uh -huh. to come in and pose the Those faces. Those fakers. Yeah. Um, and so... That th and that these canonical facial expressions, like the anger one that I was making when you asked me to do that, yeah. that you don't actually see that in everyday life, right? Like when someone is angry with you, if you if you don't really see that, right? I argue you do. You see do it. see it. It just it has to be a heightened circumstance. Exactly. Of course you do. And it's yeah. just not that um, common. So, like one example right. is like the canonical fear face. A lot of people, um, when they are feeling afraid of something, don't often make the like eyes open, mouth open, you know, wide eyes, slack jawed kind of fearful face but i have seen uh -huh. videos that were taken with blacklight cameras in haunted houses awesome. and people make the canonical fear face when my daughter was two two and a half one time i dropped something in the kitchen and yeah. it startled her and frightened her and in the like three seconds before she started crying she made i wish i had snapped a picture because it was the most canonically fearful face like i've yeah. ever seen in my yeah. life it and like could have been the, one of I, those stimuli i was just thinking we often will feel fear and our body has maybe the impulse to open up mouth and open mm -hmm. up eyes but i think our brain might want to hide the fear and totally i can imagine true. like th your your body's the impulse to open but then then your mouth sort of closes to to pretend to ah. to cover. And I want to talk about what the actor tool value of those stereotypical mm. six ones are. It makes me think about this uh, acting exercise or tool called Rasa Boxes, which I've never taught, yeah. which uh, were devised in the 80s and 90s by a man named Richard Schechner. I learned them when I was teaching at the Denver Center, I think from Hillary Blair. I hope I'm attributing that correctly. And I don't know these well, so I apologize if I, I describe them not quite correctly. Um, but the Sanskrit word rasa is translated as like juice taste, flavor, essence. And we would sort of translate that as, as emotion in essence a way. Essence boxes. Essence boxes. And they set them up. It's a grid of three by three. And there are ultimately eight. Each box is a rasa, um, which I'm going to say is an emotion. And then the middle one is like pure bliss, like you're empty of emotion. And some of them are... Um, one of them is surprise, wonder. That's one emotion. One rasa. One is love. One is fear or shame. One is disgust or revolt. One is courage, the heroic, the hero. One is laughter. One is uh, sadness, sadness slash compassion, which is interesting. And one is rage. And this is kind of tied yeah. to, um, I think, is it Artaud who says um, actors should be athletes of the... Uh, 
Athletes of Emotions. Oh man, we should and have named our podcast that. The what? Athletes, the athletes of Emotions. Athletes of Emotion. <laughs> but it's what I love about this exercise. I only did a student. I'm not sure I've ever taught it. Is that you enter in to this rasa, right? And you like you play it like to the hilt all the way, and it comes out physically, and it comes out in breath, and it comes out mm. vocally, and then you jump to another one, and then yeah. if you like either need a break, I guess I don't know when you would go into the middle, which is the one that's like um, the, the middle wi- sounds like a total palate cleanser. Yeah, cleanser it's like me. ginger, yeah. right? Yeah. When you're eating sushi, it's you, but you're jumping. And I think there's something really healthy about that and malleable and it creates mm. athleticism and it, emotional athleticism maybe, or it simply creates acceptance. Like it's okay to feel yes, all these things. Probably both of those things. Yeah. As well as, again, I, I would guess that that is another example of the usefulness of these stereotypes, these yes. heuristics that are overgeneralizations that you'd probably rarely, am I right that you would rarely actually use the exact physicality that you acted out in a Rasa box in a performance, maybe but it might a play that would want that style. Maybe, yeah. maybe in, in a, maybe in really extreme situations, but for the most part, you're getting bits and pieces, right? Like you're getting little pieces of sense memory. You're getting, the feeling of dropping into a different physicality, you're probably getting a really good sense of contrast yeah. between the emotions uh-huh. as you jump. Do you literally uh-huh. jump or do yeah. you just uh, transition? You transition, okay. but you, you transition with no time in between. Yeah. So in that way, in terms of time, you are jumping from yeah. one to the other, I think. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to make sure we drive home kind of going back to my like, I don't want to talk about emotion in an acting class. I want to now embrace talking about emotion in an acting class and also sort of nail down why as human beings, it's so popular to talk about. And we were saying it creates a shorthand, right? Rather than the litany, rather than say, I I feel angry with you right now, rather than being like, my heart is beating and my palms are sweating (laughs) and my armpits are sweating and I'm furrowing my brow and I want to hurt you. Like I can just (laughs) say I'm angry. Or, you yeah. know, or I love you and it creates a shorthand and it creates empathy. And I don't know if you've used the phrase universal currency already, but mm-hmm. I just love this phrase. It, and just given how you describe those, those two extremes, like yeah. there's a universality to emotion. And semi, a semi, semi, a qualified universality. A qualified. And so it's a really lovely way for us to communicate and connect. And I think as an acting teacher, actor, as long as we are connecting our talk of the emotional lives of the characters to the these other yeah. playable things, and let me just list it one more time, to the physica- specific physicality, to the specific vocality, to the specific analysis, like co- um, the brain of the character, what they want, what's in their way, uh, what they're in relationship to, all the factual given circumstances, the setting, and this imaginative visualization going on where they're using substitution and they're personalizing these situations or using experiences from their own life. As yeah. long as emotion... Al- um, is a bridge to talk about those things. Yeah. That's great. And as long as we translate emotion into active language. So in my page to stage class this fall, we were talking about um, Lonely Impulsive Delight, which is a short play by John Patrick Shanley. And one actor was saying he feels impatient here. I was like, great, he feels impatient. So what does he want to do, right? Well, he wants to leave his friend and go back to the party, right? So we just turn emotion into... yes. Action. action. Uh, the other person feels desperate. Why does he feel desperate? Well, he's in love with a mermaid and he wants his friend to accept and love him even though he's in love with a mermaid or because yeah. he's in love with a mermaid. Yeah. And I think that, you know, 
you described emotion as a bridge, and I would even go further and describe it as a hub, right? Linguistically, mm. emotions are hub words that connect really richly to other concepts, right? When you say, I'm feeling sad, that connects strongly semantically to feelings of loss, feelings of downness, feelings of coldness and aloneness and uh, dourness and, and gravity. Like, yeah. there's a lot of things there. And because emotions are not only hubs, you know, sort of semantically and descriptively and like, and and can help us evoke useful metaphors, which I agree with you, but that metaphors are really useful because emotions are essentially the, the, the strings that, that link together our circumstances to our actions, right? Like yeah. you're just, you're also, you're hubbing, you're making connections out to a set of circumstances that other people have felt and to a set of actions that other people have felt impulses yes. to do. So it shouldn't actually... It should be, in theory, relatively short work to bring an actor who is playing emotion into action because mm -hmm. there is a systematic relationship between specific emotions and action. So you should mm -hmm. be able to draw someone in that direction. And we've talked, when we talked about substitution, we talked about emotion as sort of like, again, not the goal of, of substitution, but the, the currency by which yes. you select appropriate substitutions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's a, a similar communicative value in terms of the co communication between actor and audience. Yes. Where just going on stage and, and emoting might be a powerful experience for some people in the audience. But the audience members aren't going through the given circumstances. The right. audience members aren't exposed to all of those things and the audience members aren't expected to act right right that's the actor's job and so if the actor can authentically express the emotion that connects those two things an audience member might go wow i've never had you know a the, i've never experienced the untimely death of a child and the abandonment of my partner but I have felt alone and sad yes. before, and now I'm connecting to this experience I've yeah. never experienced and, myself. And to support that, and we all have been guilty of just playing emotion on stage. If you end up as an actor just playing sad or happy or joyful, and it's detached from all these other things, the, the audience reads it most of the time as false. Yeah. Because... Um, Emotion is always attached to those specific things. And if you are playing this general thing, the audience doesn't buy it. I just finished teaching a, a first-year seminar and had in a great group of students. And I was watching these monologues that they had crafted. So they were al already personally attached to them because they'd written them. So there was a mm. lot of, um, what do I want to say, Some presence inside of them rather than being just given the text. And what happened in like an initial rehearsal would be they would have a strong intellectual understanding of the thoughts, which is halfway. Like that has value. You want, if you're an actor speaking words, you need to understand the thoughts going that are attached to those words. But then I said to some of them, but you don't, you need to actually emotionally attach. You need to give a shit. You need to care, right? That to me is another definition of emotion. It's just like the fact that you care about this thing happening to you. Absolutely. Um, and the appraisal theorists would say that the gateway uh, condition of an emotion yeah. is that it's relevant to you. If it, if it doesn't relate to you and your goals, it is nearly oh. impossible to have an emotion about it. It has to be at least a little bit yeah. relevant to you. Yeah. You have to you have to give at least half a shit <laughs> to have an emotion. Oh, I love that. 
I love that, but it doesn't mean the extremeness. It does not have to mean that the emotion controls you. It can, yeah. but it can be something in between, that you do give a shit, but you maybe still are reasoning inside of the emotion. Yes, um, somewhere between half a shit and all the shits. <laughs> and all the shits. That's, the, that's the, another continuum. When, my, when these first-year actors attach themselves, when it was clear that the character was feeling hopeful when they spoke this line, or because they spoke this line, mm. the actor speaking the line made them feel hopeful. Hopeful. Then the actor speaking the next line made them uh, feel despair. All of a sudden, I, as an as an audience member, am pulled into that because the character gives a shit. They're yeah. not just speaking clear thoughts. Um, in the same class, I did this exercise which I've never done before, and it was it it was so fun. Where I made them <laughs> I made them think about emotion so much, but they wrote a paragraph uh, describing an emotional. Ex- uh, an emotion. And the, I asked them to describe how it felt in their body uh-huh. and what thoughts they were experiencing nice. and then ultimately to use a metaphor or a color or a mm. symbol. And the metaphors were so amazing and they just broke them open into um, a way for me as the reader to 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 understand that feeling. Like metaphor is this really cool I love it. way to connect because it because it connects to your personal experience, but then it mm-hmm. also attach it allows the other people listening yes. to you or reading to also connect Absolutely. to it, I think. I wish that we had coordinated and that I could analyze those responses for research. <laughs> Maybe next time we can submit an IRB or something. Yeah. And- and then I had them act them out, and some of them felt very uncomfortable. Sure, like dropping into. Yeah. I mean, some of them were really negative, like you know, extreme anxiety or of extreme course. loneliness. Um, but even the maybe less negatively valenced ones, even maybe they felt weird performing emotion, even if I thought it was specific. Yeah, I want to argue and maybe disagree with myself. And I hope some listeners disagree with me and maybe Katira will disagree with me that actually you're never playing emotion on stage. Because when you're on stage, we talked about this with our inner monologue episode, I think there is a healthy balance in the actor experience of I am living inside character, and I'm living inside my actor experience. Uh Within that moment in time, you still are present in that time. You are not as actor thinking about, oh, God, uh, I'm nervous. Uh, It snowed really badly and I'm nervous about my drive home. Or, oh, I just got in a fight with my dentist and now he's going to overcharge. I don't know. I don't mean, I'm not encouraging actor think where you are distracted from something in the past or the future. But I think the truth be told you are never, you are rarely 100% engaged in character. You are always like, how close am I to the audience? Am I the right distance from my scene partner? Uh, my mic feels funny. Uh, oh, uh, I'm thinking about my next, I, I don't know. I, I okay. just, yeah. I, I think there's a healthy thing there. And I, so I am thinking when, when I am playing a character and that character is having an emotional experience, what I'm actually focused on is my breath and how I am, explicitly with my voice and my body expressing a combination of thought and feeling. Uh I'm not thinking, I don't think I'm actually sad. And so I'm thinking about, for example, when I played the soccer mom in The Wolves, which is this uh, role that just comes in at the very end. She is heartbroken. She is broken. She has lost her teenage daughter. And there's a moment where she's covering this through much of the monologue because she's just trying to cheer on the rest of the soccer team. 
And so she's kind of covering. And so the, the um, despair comes out with like anger and humor and loudness and just like supporting the troops. And then there's a moment at the very end where she just loses it. And I'm not, as an actor, I don't think I'm especially good at, like, I don't cry on cue. I'm mm-hmm. not good at just playing general emotion. Sure. I don't know how to take myself there that quickly. But I, so I was thinking in preparation for the podcast, how did I take myself there? It had to do with cognition and breath and repetition. Mm. So I, and visualization. Yeah. So cognition slash visualization, I had some sort of visualization. I think this was this idea of this imagined teenage Megan daughter being sort of wiped away. I had some picture mm. where she just disappeared. Mm. Like I, all the people at the end of the Avengers movie? They just yes, yes, yes. Um, Sorry, spoiler. No, that. <laughs> um, and then it had to do with how I was breathing. And then it had to do with looking in the eyes of my scene partners who were just crying because they were just like, why did she come in and just destroy us? Um, and then it had to do with repeating that moment over and over again. Was I, as Anne slash soccer mom, feeling despair? No. Was I broken? No. So, so... <laughs> I don't I do think it happens. I do think mm. that you can so empathize with character and let me and, and that experience was so powerful that I would occasionally go off stage and cry. Yeah. But that's not me being sad. Yeah. Yeah. That is me having a physiological yeah. response to living inside these given that circumstances. That is so interesting. So that when your thoughts and your body are connected that you're still able to display yes. the full relationship between the situation and the actions without the depth and yes. pervasiveness of subjective feeling that we usually refer to when yes. we talk about emotion. Yes. Because if you were not again, I don't want to disagree with myself here. It's emotion is not always overwhelming and the only thing that you're experiencing. Yeah. But if we agree that sometimes it is, yeah. then I can't act that moment. Yeah. That's a mo- like that moment that woman is you're right. over to all she wants is to cheer on these her yes. her daughter, her dead daughter's friends. In this community, they love it. This is their life, right? To bring on orange slices, which she's forgotten. And the fact that she's forgotten, it sends her into the spiral. Mm. That woman has lost it. Like she, her yes. her prefrontal cortex is offline, right? <laughs> but the actor's prefrontal cortex cannot yes, be cannot offline. be. I agree with you. I agree with you that even, and, and that very, 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 very rarely, and Usually, I've seen this happen in rehearsals more, and then you know, right? Like, then the actor knows that's as far as you can yes, go. Yes, yes. It very rarely happens on stage unless I would argue that someone has not been well prepared to perform. Um, but you're right. I think that there is a buffer. There is a safety zone around all of the emotions that you feel on stage that prevent you from really, as you say, lose it, from from yes. really uh, succumbing to the entire emotional experience. And the fact that... I've been fascinated with how emotion works in actors for decades now, and I've never actually thought about the fact that all of the other elements of emotion, in a good acting performance, all of the other elements of the emotion are there, and that that one can be significantly diminished without consequences to the other is super freaking fascinating to me. That's really interesting. Oh, good. I have one more story for you. When I played Mercutio this summer, it was so joyful. I would... Mercutio is a character who's like super activated, right? Uh Like he is... He is physically activated. He's vocally activated. He's just like, he's just turned on like all the time. Yeah. But when I say turned on, it's, it's not necessarily yes. like, say, it's like, it's just energetically it's just amped. there. It's like, if I can't verbally spar with my best 
friend Romeo, then I want to fight someone. I'm going to fight Tybalt or I'm going to bully the the nurse. But what happened is that like correct arousal state uh, like activated Anne uh-huh. to the point where occasionally I think Anne slash Mercutio was v- either verging into like too activated or maybe not that because I think Mercutio is pretty up there. Or the the way I behaved inside of it was not always appropriate. Mm-hmm. Meaning, let's say the activation level was correct, but Emma Messenger, who played the the nurse, would sometimes be like, "I don't, I don't think you should hit me there. <laughs> I think you should like touch my boobs because you are bullying me. You're you're like acting on me, but it's more a sexual thing than like a violent thing." And she was right. There was a moment where I had permission to pinch her. And then she showed me the bruise that I gave her because I was, I was, I was like the actor was activated in the case of the, the slap on the arm. I, I should have been acting on her, but I was making the wrong in a, I don't know if we'd say emotional. I was playing the moment wrong, even if my activation state was right. And in the other one, it was like the actor, even though I was doing like the right move, I was almost doing, I was doing it too much because I just was like the character's, mm, energy state was sort of infecting me which yeah. was fun yeah. but you're like when does it go a little too far yeah. you know so and i think i think that's something to play around with also i want to point out cuz we were talking about Mercutio this spring and yeah. about you uh, using his or her pronouns and yes. i just want to point out that you have some distance from playing him now and you're back to 100% him him cuz when i talked to you this summer right after you got off it was 50-50 yeah i was you, just simple yeah yeah I think it's because she <laughs> lived her life as a man. And yeah. so even if she wasn't like in her heart of hearts, like totally he to the public, she, sure. she was a he. And that's what that she makes felt. Sense. You just were, you just flip flopped more as you were preparing and as you were ramping down. Yeah. And but even when, ramping down. Yeah. But yeah. when you auditioned, it was all him. And now in hindsight, it's all him. Oh, that's cool. It's interesting. I dig it. All right. Next up is our interview with Dr. Ajay Satpute. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Ajay Satpute, who is an assistant professor at Northeastern University in the Department of Psychology. He is an affective neuroscientist, um, which is also how I identify. I don't know if there's a great number of people who say my primary like area of psychology is affective neuroscience, but I do too. Um, and his primary research interest is in how our brains are able to create the sort of subjective experience, the, the, the first person experience of, uh, of having emotions, all of the different emotions that we might have. So thank you so much for joining us, Ajay. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so the reason there are uh, a lot of people who study um, emotion and affective science um, and the reason I thought you would be a really amazing fit uh, for us to talk to um, is that years and years ago at a conference, you and I discovered that we had a shared interest in acting um, and how we sort of related that to our psychology research and our interest in affective science. So can you say a little bit about your kind of background interest, like how you've, you've even if loosely put these two things together over the years? Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess... I guess I kind of started acting, um, I guess you could say as a mistake. Um, well, not as a mistake. It was a mistake. Um, the mistake was that <laughs> you, you meant I didn't... to be rollerblading and 
the mistake was that um, I didn't teach that. Like I got my first set of teaching evaluations back um, and they weren't very good. Um, and much of it was about um, how it was hard for people to relate to me. Um, and I, I seemed cold and unapproachable. I got that comment many times. Um, oh, and I was like, I got to do something about this. Uh, and I'm not sure what to do. Um, and there's no obvious answers in the graduate program. Um, and so what I decided to do, I just talked to some of my friends and, um, fortunately I was living in Los Angeles at the time and they're like, you should just take an acting class. Uh, and so I enrolled in a summer class, um, at the Baron Brown school of acting. Um, and you know, I thought it was just going to be eight weeks, but then what turned into, you know, what started as eight weeks, I ended up just continuing and I finished like two years of, um, and got my certificate in, uh, in acting nice. while I was in graduate school. Wait, um, so are you telling me that you are a certified actor? I, I guess you say I'm certified, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I, you know, and it really opened up a world to me, actually, like a world that I didn't really understand um, at all. And, um, and I learned that acting can be thought of as a skill. And then there was this whole group of like, a, a whole field dedicated to understanding how people could create emotions genuinely in front of others in a pretend environment. Um, uh, and they had a whole system of doing that, that was completely different from what I had been studying as a yeah. psychologist and neuroscientist um, on emotion and social cognition and all that. And so I was just like, I was just like, why, why are these two things so different? Um, and also in those classes, I would just see how, how powerful the emotions were that people felt. Um, it, was, it, was just a, it was just a world. It was a totally different world that we yeah. both seemed to be talking about the same thing, but using very different words to talk about it. And, um, and so I was kind of hooked, I think, um, in part for that reason. Cool. So how do you think your experience like... In, in those acting classes, how do you think that's influenced your scientific view of like how emotions work or how you think of emotions or what causes emotions or how emotions are expressed or perceived? Yeah, I think probably one of the things that it um, um, did uh, for me was um, I think I started embracing a bit more like the importance of I guess what we'd call ecological validity in, in emotions, um, that, um, emotions, uh, you know, I guess, you know, when you think about for a long time, we thought about the mind or the brain as basically like a set of mechanisms, sort of like a car engine, right? And if you could just understand the brain, its parts and how they worked, you know, then you can tinker with it in certain ways. Um, and, uh, and I think from that view, it wasn't, you know, it, it's sort of like we thought there were certain emotion centers of the brain and you can just kind of ping them very simplistically um, using um, any old kind of, I don't know, tool. <laughs> um, sure. It's not the best metaphor. But no, I guess, you just whack yeah. on the carburetor and, you know, yeah, out comes anger. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think um, what what it was missing was I mean, I think intentionally many of the studies, not all of the studies, but many of the studies would intentionally not use personally relevant stimuli um, or anything that had any, any kind of personal meaning to the subject. Um, and that was on purpose because I think the thought was that that would introduce a confound. I guess that's one thing that um, came up was just um, 
the ecological validity. But I think there's a lot of other pieces. Just I think there's also a fluidity of trans... There's, there's experiences that I had in acting that I just didn't see happening in the lab. Um, and it was the fluidity of transitions from anger to sadness to grief to happiness that could all happen so quickly in a scene. Um, and all of that sort of dynamic, rich aspects that a lot of which just came through communication with somebody else was just not really part. I mean, in, in the, in the, I, I actually went to, um, um, a, uh, it was method style, but it was called Meisner acting. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And so it was very much like interactive experiences with two people on stage and your emotions came through that interaction, not just through some self-generation. Whereas in the laboratory, at least for many of the studies that we do, um, we'll put someone in a, in a room, there's a computer screen, there's no other yeah. person there. Um, they get like these punctuate stimuli, they're shown a, a video or a picture. Um, and those might be the better ones in some cases. Right? Like, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, or more realistic ones. And, uh, um, and then uh, we just kind of assume that that experience has washed over and then you just trigger another one and then you yeah. trigger another one um, instead of considering that how someone is flowing through them can really matter. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think that the, that disconnect is sometimes exacerbated, especially when people do neuroimaging, when you're putting people in the scanner, because there's this incredible premium placed on experimental control and, and timing control of the stimulus. Um, and a lot of people have gotten creative to get around you know, to, to, to study what the brain is doing, like without, without that sort of exquisite, level, exquisite level of control, but especially in the early studies, you know, when, when both you and I were in grad school, um, it very much was like, well, people are feeling whatever it is we're showing them at the time, like mm-hmm. by definition, right? Like we show them these things and therefore they're feeling this way. And like, no, you know, maybe we'll double check and ask them every once in a while, you know, how they're mm-hmm. doing. Um, you know, but I think in some ways that, um, historically some of the study of emotion has been a little bit better about using individualized memories or individualized situations. Um, but even some of the social stuff, I feel like experimental psychologists have shied away from, cause like, why would you ever let two people interact in an uncontrolled yeah. way? Yeah. Then you have no idea whether it's due to something that you've introduced to the environment or whether it's this other person. Absolutely. Um, like, so, so there's yeah. like a time and place. I mean, there is a place for it. I still do studies totally. like yes. that. There's Me definitely too. a place. And the questions that, <laughs> You know, one is trying to ask, I guess it depends on the questions and one is trying to ask yeah. and stuff. Um, yeah, but, uh, but I guess it opened me up to seeing how um, it could be trained. Um, mm-hmm. I was, at that time, certainly I was extremely interested in how you can just train. You can, you can go from a place, since I was coming from a place that felt much more, you know, unapproachable <laughs> or, or not exactly free, um, uh, I was fascinated to see that in this classroom with 12 other people or so, I could watch them progress and get better and better and more fluid and more open. And yeah. it was, it was really inspiring. Um, yeah. and for a long time I wanted to study just training actually, um, yeah. like socio-emotional training, but that line, uh, didn't happen. I ended up not studying it <laughs> for various hey, reasons. Lots career, of questions, too many questions. <laughs> your career is young. You can still, that's true. You can still that's jump true. in. Um, so did your teaching evaluations get better? They did. Um, okay. I learned uh, how to be more relaxed, more interactive, play off of what people gave me, um, not to be overly concerned. I think a lot of it was just like self-doubt uh, yeah. and concern. So I would just take a long time to respond in the past because oh. and if, you know, because it didn't, it didn't seem like a long time to me. 
But I saw a videotape of myself recording, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I am the slowest, most boring <laughs> person. But no, it, it, it helped tremendously. Okay. Um, and like for quite some time after that, I think after, you know, I would, you would think that my, the worst class for me to teach would be a seminar has become my favorite class to teach. Nice. I love the interaction. Um, so yeah. Good. Good. Let's talk a little bit more about your work and sort of how you think about emotion. So one of the things you hinted at when you were talking about some of the studies of emotion that are really common um, is that, you know, there are these distinct parts of the brain that handle different emotions and you can just sort of like rile up one part of the brain and then out, you know, comes that emotion pouring in like lots of different channels um, through the person. Could you just sort of really briefly, like, um, in your own words, talk about the kind of real, real extremes, even if you're exaggerating them a little bit between sort of like basic categorical views of emotion and then more constructionist views of emotion? Yeah, totally. Um, so, uh, you know, I think they're rooted as far back, at least, I mean, much further than this, but of course, but from Darwinian views of emotion or Darwin inspired views of emotion and William James inspired views of emotion, you know, one of our founding fathers of, of, um, of psychology, American psychology. And, uh, and, you know, according to one view, there are certain like common species specific situations that we find ourselves in trying to protect our territory, trying to, um, um, trying to run away from a predator. Um, and those are situations that have created a constellation of behaviors, physiological responses, maybe cognitions too, that, um, that bound together create um, a pattern and that pattern is an emotion, right? And so when a rodent freezes or flees, um, those are two different patterns, um, but they both are sort of loosely related to the notion of fear, right? Um, some people refer to those as defensive behaviors um, and just survival strategies or something like that. And other people have argued that those are actually the neural circuit for fear. Um, and, uh, and that's a, more of a basic view. Um, and the reason why that's important is if we think that that's the neural basis of fear, then we would assume that that circuit and system generalizes to fear and anxiety disorders in humans, which is, of course, I think the most prevalent um, uh, mental health issue for, for, for people. So, uh, so it creates a whole science around that particular model. Um, the other view is that emotions are constructed subjective experiences, um, and they may come in many different varieties. Um, and it kind of just sort of de depends on your experience, um, and sort of passed down generation to generation, social knowledge about what they are. Um, and so, it's a little bit of a harder view, I think, to argue, but starting from James, uh, James uh, was, you know, one of the things that he mentioned in one of his papers was, well, you know, people can have a fear of bears, but also a fear of getting wet. Um, and they can be very different things with very different patterns. In fact, he uh, didn't particularly argue strongly for the notion that fear had its own unique architecture, that there are many different varieties of fear with many different kinds of patterns um, that we could study. Um, and so from a, from a constructionist standpoint, um, emotions are built from more basic ingredients. And these ingredients might be things like, well, we have something that controls the autonomic system. Uh, and we have something that helps us learn, right? Um, like learning and memory. It's probably one of the most amazing things that the brain can do. Um, and it's just about linking things together over time. 
And some people might make many links or, or many unique links, and some people may not. And so we refer to this as granularity, and I think this is a really important piece of constructionism, that we might actually have different emotions. One person um, might have a very sort of simple emotional space where they just sort of think, see the world, their emotional world is just, that's something I like and that's something I dislike. Um, and when they dislike it, they find it disgusting and fearful maybe, and sort of, you know, frustrating. And when they like it, um, they find it, um, joy, you know, they, they say it's joyful, it's exciting. I'm happy. All these things kind of glom together. They're not really that discreet. Mm -hmm. Whereas another person might say that actually frustration and anger and livid are really different experiences, you know? Um, and so in, in their brains, they have really separate categories for these. And this, this is basically just like expertise um, and, and emotion. Um, and it, and it, from, from a constructionist standpoint, means that people just experience the world differently. Um, so I like to use a chess playing metaphor because there's some really famous studies on chess um, about chess and memory. And what they did was if you just show people a chessboard with pieces arranged um, as if it were in the middle of a game, Chess experts can easily remember all of this, all the sort of configurations of these pieces, because they have a lot of top-down knowledge that helps them guide, that, help, that they know what these configurations are, and they've experienced them before. They understand their strengths and weaknesses of certain formations, and mm -hmm. they can easily reproduce many of these boards from just looking at it, you know, from memory for just a couple seconds. Whereas a novice, it would, it's like impossible, right? Um, and so I think similarly, if you could think of the chess pieces as sort of like all the feelings in your body and what's happening in the world around you, your internal and external experience. And you have now, there's a way that you can organize them into chunks or categories. Um, some of those chunks or categories we think of as emotions, but it's through a learning and memory mechanism in which the learning and memory involves both feelings from the body as well as throughout the world. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's, that's, a, that was uh, probably much lengthier than. No, I, I mean, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that's one of the shortest explanations <laughs> of that difference I've ever, mm. I've ever heard. I guess one of the, my, my sort of follow up questions for that is that, you know, again, like I asked you to paint the extreme views. Um, but I feel like I have noticed and I'm curious whether you've noticed this as well, that people in general, as well as psychology students, as well as, uh, you know, acting, you know, students, I would say as well, get really excited about approaching emotion in a more categorical way, in a more basic way, in a more like, these are the, you know, these are the rules about like the situations which cause anger. And these are the physiological outputs of anger versus, you know, sadness. Um, that sort of thing. And, um, a, like, I guess my first question is like, have you also noticed this sort of like very intuitive, like non-scientific resistance to the idea that like the, that categories that we talk about aren't like real and useful and helpful. And like B, this is not even an emotion question, but like, why do you think people have an attachment to this sort of idea? Um, Cause I feel like I, I feel like, you know, I, I as you know, I'm, I'm a pretty strong appraisal theorist um, which I, I put on the sort of like constructionist side of the, uh, of the continuum, but not entirely. And I know that like some of the real card carrying constructionist people will say that appraisal theory is not the, the, the same thing. I see everything as appraisal theory. So I'm like, I don't think they're incompatible at all. Um, but, um, 
you know, when I explain sort of some of the appraisal theories about like, these are the characteristics of situations that are the most likely to cause, you know, anger versus sadness. Most of the time people go, yeah, like they, like it, there's a, there's not just an, oh, that's an interesting idea. I wonder if that's true. There's like a deep resonance of like, yes, you just summarized all the times I've ever felt angry. And so it seems, I've never done a study, you know, of this, I know mm. other people have, um, but it seems to me that there's some sort of like value in, in like glomming onto that. I'm just curious, like what, what you think about that? I think that there's like a layer of how we can talk about emotions in society that make it more or less useful to understand them. Um, and I think that's totally fine. Um, uh, I think that, you know, and, and as for appraisal theory, like, you know, I, I think that there are appraisal basic views and appraisal constructionist views. And mm. some people who call themselves appraisal theorists are actually really constructionist also, right? And so yeah. they're kind of fuzzy boundaries here, right, totally. uh, in a way. Um, and I think it, you know, part of it depends on your causal model and all that, you know, stuff. But, um, but I guess, like, I think that there is a layer in which we can talk about emotions that can be more effective. So from a constructionist standpoint, the way that emotions in, way, in a way get learned um, is through culture. So you basically learn from your parents. You, you know, you might be doing something as a little kid um, and you experience some pain and you experience, you know, like a few things happen. You try to make some action. And then your parent might say, oh, are you feeling angry? You know, you might even have tears in your eye, but you're, you know, your parent says, oh, are you feeling angry? And so now you learn that there's this word that attaches to this constellation of complex behavior that now you can use to convey to somebody. I think there's clearly a utility to having a language about emotion in society that we transmit um, that helps us convey to each other what our experiences are um, and what might be the causes of them and the features of them. Um, so we can kind of broach this barrier of subjectivity between each other, where mm -hmm. I don't know what's happening in your mind. Um, but if you tell me with just a couple words, I get a much clearer idea. I can build a model of your mind much better. Um, um, and so, you know, one of the one of the ways I like to talk about this is emotions themselves are not necessarily that like the terms, you know, the you know, just telling telling you I felt I feel mad, right? Is not that helpful without the situation. Uh -huh. And the situation is not that helpful without the emotion. Hey, I went to uh, Disneyland, right? But if I tell you, hey, I went to Disneyland and I felt mad, you can probably create many more ideas of what happened in my life, right? But if I was just like, hey, I just want to say that's a really good movie right there. I don't know what happened in it, but that's a really good movie. <laughs> or like I went on a roller coaster. Yeah. Great, you know, or I went on a roller coaster and I felt afraid. Super helpful. Um, so I think that, there is, um, there is obviously a utility to using language to talk about emotions with each other. But I think that's really different than understanding how do emotions actually work? How does the brain really construct them at all? Um, yeah. And I think both are very, very helpful and useful for their own fields. Um, yeah. And, and Anne and I, I feel like, talked a lot about how... Um, you know, because emotion labels can be these sort of like hubs that have a lot of sort of like commonly agreed upon spokes that come out from them, they do make efficient ways of communicating about character. Um, but I think she would also agree with you that to just say like, oh, this character is angry right now, like is not very helpful as an acting tool. But if you add in other pieces of inform information, you know, 
honestly on either side of like what I would consider the sort of like causal pathway. Um, you know, if you, if you either say like, you know, this person just got dethroned and they're angry, you know, that, that, that then becomes more playable. Or, um, if you say this person is angry, but they're not allowed to show it right now, you know, Mm -hmm. that like Mm -hmm. both of those are infinitely richer than just being like, okay, you're angry in this scene, go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, context matters so much. Yeah. Um, and so actually we've been exploring some of this in some recent work. It's not yet Ooh. published, Ooh. But, uh, but I would like to share a little bit of it. Um, and what we've been doing is looking at different varieties of fear. So fear of heights, fear of social situations, fear of spiders, fear of, you know, um, you could say environmental disaster, um, fear of disease. There's so many different ways that people feel fear. Um, and coming back to some of these views on basic versus constructionist views, it's, you know, if the reason in part why I think we've isolated down to a handful of emotions from a basic perspective um, is because in part that we think of like, well, there's certain sort of fundamental things that animals need to do. Um, And fear usually in that realm is thought of as running from a predator. Mm. And certainly people feel fear during predator prey interactions. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they feel anger, actually, you know, Um, there's, there's variation. Um, but, um, but most of that work is studied from this context. Like, and so in, when you do research in rodents, even there, it's sort of like imminent physical harm somehow, right? Even if it's like a tone and a shock. Um, and a lot yeah. of that work was, was, uh, like driven by the predator prey view. But this is why in part we chose fear of heights because it is not, there's no predator mm. in the situation, but it's a very poignant fear that has a history behind it in psychology. There's a ra- a acrophobia, of course, um, that many people experience. I've felt myself. Um, and, uh, and so what we did was we basically asked, well, when you increase fear, when subjective feelings of fear are heightened during fear of heights, like walking down the stairs, which is not necessarily that frightening, but then walking at the edge of a cliff is, right? And you can compare those two situations versus one of spiders where it's like, oh, there's a, there's a spider on a web, you know, it's not as scary as a spider crawling up your arm, right? And so you can kind of within each case examine, well, as you increase fear, what happens in the brain and what happens to your physiological responses? And you see there's different patterns. Mm. The pattern that occurs for fear during heights doesn't seem to match the pattern of fear that occurs during spiders very well at all. And similarly, physiologically, we get very different um, Mm. relationships. Um, And so that's something that I think a constructionist, is a question that a constructionist theorist would be really interested in, of course, um, is that how does their variation in situation and person predict... um, you know, how, how does the variation sort of hang together for your subjective experiences, your physiological res- uh, responses and, and your neural, um, mm-hmm. neural, neural patterns. Yeah. Very cool. I look forward to, um, hearing more about that study as Anne was thinking about this sort of like constellation or these sort of like loosely grouped patterns of thoughts and subjective feelings and behaviors that people have. Um, she was saying that as an acting teacher, she finds that the cognitive root and the physical root are the the most pliable. Like, are, mm-hmm. like that's what she can really work with. Like, she can help people think about something in a rich and detailed and vivid way that often helps their performance, and that she can give people really specific physical instruction to drop them in to a particular experience. 
And that she finds both of those things to be much more fruitful than mm-hmm. like jumping into the subjective experience yeah. piece of it. Like, absolutely. Do yeah. you, do yeah. you have like thoughts about like why that might be? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think that like, I think that, um, it's, it's sort of like, okay. So let's just say that you think one thinks one, one argues that fear is a module. Um, from that view, if I ask someone to say, pretend they're, you know, at the precipice of a cliff looking down, feel afraid. Um, or if I say, Hey, you're interacting with the spiders chasing you or like a monster is chasing you feel afraid. Right. Um, you get a very stereotyped notion that's built on someone's idea of what they think fear is right mm-hmm. in those cases. Um, um, and so I think the issue is that, um, you don't make the same face every time you feel afraid. Right? You don't have the same physiological pattern every time you feel afraid. They really are situationally dependent. And if you just focus on the subjective experience, yeah, I just want you to feel afraid, then you're going to get a stereotyped thing that probably isn't going to look like it's matching the new, the, the puzzle piece isn't going to fit. You're going to have an actor whose, whose behaviors and reactions May just don't fit as well. It's going to be a, a poorly cut puzzle piece. Whereas if you really just focus on the situation, um, I think, um, and you immerse yourself in what's happening, it, it's like you're, you're creating, you're taking fiction and making it more and more realistic. You'll get what you actually might do in that circumstance. Um, and so that's a better, I think that's a better fit for realism, mm-hmm. at least. That's really helpful. Um, I think there's the only other possibility, I mean, one other possibility that I think comes to mind when you focus on the subjective is that you become internally focused mm. um, and you can kind of miss things. Like nothing sort of falls. I mean, it's often when I see a show that two people are acting and one actor does something on stage that the other one ought to be reacting to, but the other one doesn't. And then it totally blows away my sense of this is real. Right. Yeah. And I think that it's possible that when you focus internally, you're like, am I hitting this emotion? Am I not hitting this emotion? You're, you're so focused on yourself that you can miss what happens in your world. Totally. Um, and, uh, and then you're no longer shaping your responses to what's happening. You're just acting off of an idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's probably like somewhat distracting to be like trying to like introspect and like match your current state to like some stereotype that you know ideal state that you actually never experienced in pure form anyway like that's Mm -hmm. a recipe for disaster you're always going to get an error there like in the comparison um so then you're just consumed with 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 that um versus if you focus on the situation like there's a possibility for getting zero error because if you're attending fully to your situation like then you're taking everything in and like that's your reality that's interesting yeah yeah Yeah. i like it it's like yeah i like the the error terminology that you're bringing in I think because it does, it does like create, like I'm using an idea, is the idea fitting what's happening? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that can kind of throw you off even. Whereas if you're just kind of dealing with what's happening, everything is idiosyncratic, but you're attending to it and you're like absorbed in it, you yeah. react according to it. It's like you're playing tennis, you know, you're just back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. You have to react to that, that, um, that volley. Otherwise, you know, it's just going to go right by you. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, yeah. yeah, I hate that too. When uh, I hate it when people don't respond on stage to other people. I also 
I mean, I think this is a lot of people's pet peeve, but like, I hate it when just things happen in the environment that people don't respond to, like a book falls off the bookcase behind someone and then they just ignore it and keep going. I'm like, go get the book or at least turn and look at the book or (laughs) be like, I'll get that later. Like, like just somehow like add something. It like totally Um, removes the social reality of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much for your time. And uh, it was really fun talking about these things. Yeah. Likewise. If you are enjoying us again, please uh, feel free to leave an iTunes rating uh, that it scales with your uh, emotional response to our <laughs> to our podcast. We want to thank DU for helping to fund our podcast. We want to thank Jonathan Howard, our terrific sound engineer and web designer, Jennifer Forsyth for her administrative prowess, Cami Chaikin for her energy and commitment to increasing our social media presence. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and Nate Cushing for his awesome editing. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye.